we may have the strength of the Spirit. That's in verse 16. The second petition is that we may have the indwelling of Christ. That's in verse 17. And the last petition is that we have the fullness of God, and that's in verse 19. So you see the whole Trinitarian outline there. And, you know, Paul was careful to include everyone in the Trinity in this prayer. He starts out in verse 14. I'll read the whole section. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we we dissect Paul's prayer tonight, Lord, that you would just emblazon it on our hearts and, and give us the passion to pray this prayer for other people, Lord, that we may have the fullness of God and have the Christ dwelling in our hearts richly and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to transform our lives and to empower us, Lord, to, to do the incredible, the miraculous, and the the spiritual gifts, Lord, that you've given us, Lord. And we just give you the glory for all that you're going to do through this passage, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm always reminded that, you know, God says his word won't return to him void. And it, it doesn't matter how many of us are here tonight. His word's going to go out. We'll hear it, and it won't return to God void. He'll work this into our lives and change us through his his word. Um, Paul starts out for this reason, and when he talks about things like that, you kind of look back to the previous section to see why he's saying for this reason. And I'm not going to read the previous section, but Paul gives us at least six reasons in the previous section why he prays. First, that the Gentiles may know Christ and his immeasurable riches. You know, it's we're those Gentiles. I'm 4% Jewish. That's all. I'm, that means I'm 96% Gentile. And God wants us to have, to know Christ and have his unsearchable riches. Number two is to reveal the mystery of the gospel. Number three is to make known the manifest wisdom of God. And number four is to reveal God's intended purpose, and that was to save people. Number five is that they tell them that they can confidently approach God. And number six, to not be discouraged about Paul's sufferings. And we're going to go back to that word discouraged in, in a little while because 
Paul uses a, a word that's just the opposite of that in Greek, and it's, it's pretty interesting. He goes on, I kneel. You know, Paul is breaking tradition here by kneeling in prayer because Jewish people, their tradition is to stand in prayer. And that's still their tradition. If you see Jewish people praying, they're usually standing. Like if you look at the people that go to the Western Wall, they're standing out there. But Paul changes that for the Christian church by kneeling. And kneeling is a sign of um, humility and submissiveness and reverence and adoration. When we kneel before God, we're just showing him that we know who he is and how much greater he is than we are. And, and I think that's the best way to put it. Um, Eusebius was one of the early church fathers. He identified kneeling as a custom of the Christians in his writings. And, and since then, it's, I think it's a good tradition to have. And we see Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, he knelt before the Father when he was praying just before his crucifixion. Even Jesus was in total submission to the Father by kneeling like that. And when I get a chance, I like to kneel in prayer, but my knees sometimes just don't allow it. You know, I'm getting old, unfortunately. But I still like to kneel in prayer at times. And he's kneeling before the Father. Jesus gave us the privilege of praying to the Father. In the Lord's Prayer, he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father. And, and to me, that is such a privilege that we have of approaching God and calling him our Father. And when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn apart, opening the way into the Holy of Holies and allowing us direct access to the Father. If you look at Luke 23... 44 to 46, it's Luke 23, 44 to 46. And it says, now it was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour where the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So we see it's very significant that the veil in the temple was torn in two at that time of Jesus' passing. And his passing completed the work that he came here to do. And at that same time, we were given direct access to God. We didn't need intermediaries anymore like priests to do our praying for us. And you see the word um, before, he, he knelt before the Father. And this word is, is so important. You, would, you don't think of a little word like before being important. But in Greek, this word is pros, P-R-O-S, pros. And it means a face-to-face -face encounter. You know, God not only gave us privilege to pray, but he gave us the privilege of having a face-to-face -face encounter with him. And, and I love that they use that preposition there because to me it's like 
we want to see God. We want to see God's glory. And when we're praying, we're actually in a face-to-face encounter with him. We may not see him physically in front of us, but spiritually he's right there when we're praying because we know he indwells us. And even sometimes I'll pray to God inside of me, and it gives you that close, intimate feeling. Like if I'm praying for big things, I'll pray to God out there, um, you know, in his greatness and his authority and his generosity. But if I'm praying very personal things, I, I pray to God inside of me because that's where he dwells. And it gives you such an intimate feeling in prayer when you're praying to God inside of you. Paul addresses God as Father because of the redemptive act of Christ who made this possible. If you look at Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, it says, He came to preach peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. It's through Christ we have access to the Father. He's our intermediary. He's the one that prays constantly for us and intercedes for us to the Father. You know, when you think of that, I can't pray for myself better than Jesus can pray for me. You know, Jesus is always interceding before the Father for all of us because his love for us is so great. We can trust the Father with the implicit confidence of children. You know, I love watching fathers with their children. You know, when they just, the kids just go, Daddy, 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 and they come running up to them, and you just pick them up in your arms, and you can see the joy in the child's face when they get picked up like that. And all I can think of is that's the kind of relationship that we can have the privilege of having with God. You know, he hasn't made it difficult for us to come to him. In verse 15, it continues the same sentence, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul uses a wordplay here. At the end of 14, he talks about um, father. The word there is pater, and the word for family that he uses is patria. Actually, it means fatherhood. So if you read this differently, from whom his whole family or from whom his whole fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. I don't know about you guys, but I got my last name from my father. And the same thing here. We get our name from God because he is our father, our spiritual name, the one that really matters. You know, when you think about that, God is the example for all fatherhood. Um, this fatherhood in group includes things that could be a group united by descent from a common ancestor. It's a very common word in Greek. Or it could be a family, tribe, or even a nation, or any large class or community. Here, though, Paul's talking about the family of believers or the fatherhood of believers because we all have fathers, and that fatherhood is what gives us our, um, our name and our 
our character in a lot of things that we get from our fathers. I've got a note here that says, all fatherhood in the universe is derived from God. And it's um, God is the prototype for all fatherhood. If, if you want the example of a good father, God is the ultimate perfect example of what a good father is. God's family is confined to believers only, and his family is not confined to earth, but embraces heaven as well. We all know those wonderful saints that have gone on before us. We're all part of the same family, no matter whether they're living or dead. We're still part of that same family. And it crosses all cultures, all lines, all denominations. There's believers everywhere in this world. And the emphasis is always on the oneness of the family versus a plurality. There is only one body of Christ. There's only one family of God. Ephesians 2:19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You know, our citizenship isn't here. Our home isn't here. I may have a house in Trenton. That's not my home. My home is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. And Paul's given us such a, a privilege, or God gave us a privilege through Paul's writings to come to him like that. And the members of this household or family are called brothers. First Peter 2.17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. Love the brotherhood of believers. I love that thought, you know, as brothers in Christ, we couldn't have a closer, better family. I'm closer to some Christian brothers in this church than I am my biological brothers. I have more contact with my Christian brothers in Christ than I have with my biological brothers. Even though both of them are Christians, and I know, you know, our visits are wonderful when we get together, but we're separated by time and space you know so it's i depend on our the brotherhood here instead of my biological brothers because you guys are a part of the family that i belong to and it's interesting because no gnosticizing notion of a lesser gods that rule the earth is possible here you know we don't have to Think about other intermediaries or angels or spirit beings like the false teachers who are trying to push on the Ephesian church because we can go directly to one father, one father of the whole body of Christ. And Christ is the head of that body. Verse 16. Hear the siren out there. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's a powerful part of this prayer. That's why I love this prayer, and I love to pray it for other people, because um, 
Paul's prayer is concerned with the appropriation of God's provision in Christ through the Spirit. You can't get any better than this. These divine resources are described as his glorious riches. Our provision is based on God's glorious riches, our spiritual provision. We have no reason to be lacking spiritually in our lives because we have a God who wants to provide more than we can even imagine or think. You know, and I love that thought. Um, these blessings are distributed in this lavish scale. You know, when we think of how generous and good God is and how lavish he is with his goodness, you know, when I was a sinner, God saved me by his grace. And it wasn't, oh, now you're saved. It was like, now you're saved. You know, it's such a, an awesome privilege. And the word for strengthen here, that he may strengthen you with power, is the opposite of the word discourage that we see in verse 13. So it's sort of like a, an encouraging thought. You, if you go to the opposite of discourage, it would mean to encourage. Here they've translated it as strengthen, which is fine. It means that too. But the primary meaning is that we be encouraged in that and strengthened in it. And the word power here is, comes from the Greek word dunamis. And that's where we get the word dynamite. But I want to clear something up here because there's teaching out there that, um, you know, dunamis is that explosive power like dynamite. No. <laughs> dynamite came, you know, 1900 years later after this was written. And the Greek word doesn't mean explosive power like some teachers out there would like you to know. It just means a a strong power, a power that God controls and wields. Because we know he is all-powerful. There's nothing that he can't do. And, you know, when we look at that kind of power that's available to us through the Spirit, there's no reason to be a weak or, you know, impotent Christian. We can be powerful in the name of God. And it's through his spirit, the agent and source of power. You know, we pay, tend to pay not too much attention to the spirit. We focus mostly in, in American Christianity on the father and the son. And, and you know, we think of oh, the Holy Spirit or, or if you have King James, Holy Ghost. You know, what, what is that? You know, but the spirit is an integral part of the Trinity. And an integral part of the person who distributes God's gifts and enforces and in, imbues the power into our life with those gifts that he gives us, the spiritual gifts. So if we were wise Christians, we would spend a lot more time focusing on the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's given to us as the seal for our salvation, the Holy Spirit's given to us um, for so many other purposes to strengthen us and help us to grow, to teach us the word as we read it, to enlighten our minds. The Holy Spirit does so much for us. So we need to pay a lot more attention to the Holy Spirit. And this strengthening that he's talking about occurs in our inner being. 
And, and the phrase here is interesting because it's definitely an invention of Paul because it's not found anywhere else in, in Greek literature. And I think he's making a play on words with Plato's because Plato had the, the concept of the man within. But Paul wanted it to encompass more than that. So he called it our inner being. And here we see the contrast with the inner being and the outer man. Because we know the outer man is wasting away. If you look at 2 Corinthians, um, nope, I don't have the chapter for that one. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Let's go that one. I'm sorry, I forgot to put a chapter in that Corinthians one. It was a good passage if I could only remember the chapter. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, uncircumcised uncircum or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. You know, our, our old man, our outer being, is wasting away and you know if i could show you the x-rays that they just took recently of my shoulders my shoulders are wasted away they're gone i have no more cartilage in my shoulders and that's just proof that our that our, this flesh this temporary tent that we're in is just wasting away it's wearing away it's deteriorating but inside my inner being my spirit man is growing in relationship to God and, and Christ. And that's what we should be focusing on. So many people in America focus on the outer man. They want, you know, big muscles. They want to look good when they go to the beach. They, you know, they want to be pumped up and, and you know, washboard abs and all those other things. That's just the outer man that's wasting away. I had a my health teacher in high school um, was one of those people that liked to look buff and, and muscular. But at the time, I ran track, you know, scrawny little guy, 115 pounds. Um, not much to me back then. But he said, you're probably healthier than I am because you're working on your um, aerobic capacity and strength instead of your, you know, the outside. He said, compared to what you're doing, mine is just like a paint job on the outside. So if we can think of our bodies as that, just, just a paint job on the outside. You know, as you get older, the paint starts wrinkling and cracking and, and peeling off. And, and inside, though, we can be renewed daily. Renewed daily in our spirit. You know, we can grow in our spirit and be strong in our spirit. And it's that that we get to encourage other people with. You know, that love that grows in us as we come closer to Christ for his body and others within the body. There's nothing that compares to that. You know, these close, intimate relationships we can have with each other and with God. Verse 17, this is the result. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. I'll stop there before I get into 18. But the result of this strengthening of our inner being is that Christ takes up residence in the hearts of believers. And I believe as you grow closer to him, he grows closer to us. And there's more of him available to us through his spirit as we grow closer to him. You know, again, there's just no reason for Christians to to be weak or, or struggling in their faith or in their walk with Christ. The word dwell here um, is a verb that's in the continuous present tense, indicating the progressive nature of Christ indwelling. I love that thought. You know, it's a continuous present tense. It's something that happened once in the past that has continuing results for all of eternity. Christ dwelling in our hearts in a progressive nature. As we grow in him, we have more of him available to us. As a Christian keeps trusting through faith, that Christ continues to indwell Christians. It's our faith, it's through faith that he continues to dwell in our hearts. You know, if you lose your faith or walk away from your faith, you're in danger, strong danger. But through faith, we continue in that process of growing in the Lord. The heart here is the focus and is the mind, includes the mind, the feeling, and the will, and rep, rep, represents our whole personality. You know, our heart is what our personality is based on, which includes our emotions and our will, and our thoughts and our mind. You know, someone told me once that if you put something in a glass, like water, and you shake it, whatever is in that glass is going to come out. And that glass is like our heart. Whatever we put into our heart, when we're shaken, is going to come out. If you filled your heart with Christ, when we're shaken, that's what's going to come out. If you filled your heart with the garbage of this world, then that's what's going to come out when we're shaken. You know, I think it's the psalmist said, you know, we speak, or Jesus said, we speak from the abundance of our heart. You know, what's in our heart is going to come out sometime. If you find yourself, you know, cursing and using a lot of foul language, then that's what's in your heart. What's in your heart is going to come out. It's in love, and I love this part of it. Um, in love here could end this clause or start the next clause. And in the in the NIV, it starts the next clause, but it it's sort of right in the middle, I think, for a reason, because it could do both here. Um, it is not too difficult to realize that love results from Christ indwelling presence. If you say you're a Christian, but you don't love your brother, that's a poor indicator that you may not be a Christian because God's given us this great love that we should be just pouring out to others. And, and it's a love that's too great to contain. 
There's two metaphors I like it in the next clause. It's rooted and established. The first one is of a tree with deep roots in the soil of love. I love that pic word picture. You think of a tree growing, and its roots are going deep in the soil of love. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You know, he refers to us as his field or his building, you know, or that like that tree that's got deep roots in the soil of love. The second is of a building with strong foundations laid on the rock of love. Um, look at second, uh, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. I may have this mixed up a little bit. So then just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You know, it's Christ that we're rooted into. He's the vine, you know. We're just the, a branch off of it, but we're rooted into him, connected to him as a vital part of our relationship with him. If we weren't connected and had that vital relationship like that, we wouldn't be Christians. We have to be in that vine to be Christians. And, you know, you go to Paul's argument, I think it's in Corinthians, about, you know, well, well some were of the Jews were clipped off of this, this vine or pruned off of this vine, and the Gentiles were grafted in and were warned that, you know, just as those Jews were pruned off that vine, so can the Gentiles be. You know, we're, there's always that hazard that's facing us if we were to walk away from the faith. In Colossians 1, 21 through 23, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Um, you know, we are established in Christ. And the, the key to this whole verse is the phrase, in love. It's in love, in God's love, in that type of deep self-sacrificial love that God has for us and wants us to have for each other. When we can live self-sacrificially for the benefit of the body of Christ or the benefit of a family within the body, or whatever it is that we're called to do. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. I'm going to skip that Matthew passage, just so you know. Um, it's too long. Verse 18 continues the sentence um, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I love this phrase, that we may have power. 
Um, the verb is used only here in the New Testament. It's a unique, unique verb that Paul uses here. And the noun form is used in Ephesians 1.19. If you want to look at that real quick, it's um, just looking at the wrong chapter. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. So when he's talking about the power, there is the power of God that he wants us to have. And it seems to have a very intensive meaning here in the Greek. Intensive meaning means it's just a very strong emphasis on the value of that power and the strength of that power that we have available to us. And, and to me, we, we, we'll never have all of God's power because God's power is infinite. And we're only finite beings. We can't contain all of God's infinite power. Only God can do that. But we can have a portion of it to use in our lives for the benefit of others. And, that, and the power comes through our use of the gifts of the Spirit and um, acts of service to others and how we lay down our life. God has to give us that power for us to lay down our life for others. We can't do things like that on our own. It takes the strength that only God can give us. You ask the average person on the street that's not a believer if they'd lay down their life for someone, and their answer would probably be, no way. You know, because they're all taught out there, live for yourself, do what you want. You're number one. Don't let anyone get in your way. But as Christians, it's the total opposite. We're to exalt others as being better than ourselves. We're not to take the best seat at the table. We're not to take, you know, the best place in church. And we're not to show favoritism to others that seem important. But we're to elevate others and encourage them and view them as better than ourselves. And he mentions it's it's with all the saints that we're we have this power together with all the saints. I love that thought. It's not just me that has power. It's not just Oliver that has power or Daniel that has power. It's everyone has this power. Everyone that's a believer has access to this power through the Holy Spirit, through Christ and our relationship with him. It's not an isolated experience for just the Ephesians, but it's for all believers. And it's the corporate aspect of the believer's experience. You know, our experience as believers is corporate. It's not individual. There's a small amount that's individual, but our lives as believers as a, as a part of the body. You know, when Paul talks about in other places that a Peter talks about us being like a a spiritual temple built up, and each of us is a spiritual rock in the wall of that temple. And if you look at how stone buildings are built, is one stone upon another, next to another, all cemented together. You know, sometimes it's not the stones that get to pick who's the stone that's next to them. It's the mason, it's the builder that chooses where those rocks are placed in his temple. And we're like those rocks. 
being built together, not as an individual temple, but as the temple of God built spiritually through our relationships with each other. Um, if you look at one set, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, when he's talking about empowerment, it seems to always come with enlightenment. We find that. I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I can keep going there. That's a powerful passage. Um, but our strength and our power also come with enlightenment and wisdom and other beautiful gifts that we have. And the word to grasp here, I really love because it literally means to hold as one's own. You know, the literal meaning is to hold as one's own. He doesn't want us to just like reach out and like pick it up, grasp it, put it down. It's like reach out, pick it up, and hold it as your own forever. To me, that's a powerful thought because, you know, he's not a God of, of just the, the quick, you know, fix relationship. He's a God that wants continual fellowship with us. And he wants us to, to grasp this power as our own. God wants us to possess this knowledge, and it can only be perceived through his spirit. You know, he gives us his spirit to indwell us, to teach us, to, as we read the word, to enlighten us as to what the word means. And then he goes on to these, these incredible ideas of measurement. He's got a, like a four-sided cube in mind. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This is an infinite, immeasurable love. It cannot be measured. There are no dimensions that would be able to contain the love that Christ has for us. When you think of how wide, how long, how deep, just impossible to measure it. And I think that's Paul's goal here is to make us realize that it is too large to be confined by any geometrical measurements. It's wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. Um, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Can't find 9 here. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And it's long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity. That's how, how big God's love is. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For he chose us in him before the creation. 
of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You know, that his love is wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. If God created other worlds that we don't know about, we know that Christ's sacrifice would be sufficient for them too. You know, and you think of the, the whole universe, the ideas that cannot contain the love of God. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit of this for time. It's high enough to raise both Jews and Gentiles to heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I skipped a couple there, brother. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance <laughs> until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See how many times Paul uses to the praise of his glory? So amazing. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming age, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You know, when you think of that, God raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with him. That love is high enough to take us right into the heavenlies and be seated there with him in his spiritual realm. And it's deep enough to rescue people from sin's degradation and even from the grip of Satan himself. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I love this verse. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. When you think of the, the glory and beauty of how deep Christ reached down to save most of us. You know, some grow up in a Christian church like I did. Some don't. And they fall into the deep degradation of sin and debauchery. But they never can go too deep for Christ to pull up out of that lifestyle. And to transform them and to forgive them of their sins and change them into new creations. You know, when we come to Christ, we're completely 
made new. We're a new creation. The old is gone. We don't have to carry that baggage any, anymore. We don't have to deal with that old stuff and that old lifestyle because God's given us the opportunity for a brand new life and a brand new lifestyle. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You know, we have that availability because this is a command, and he can't command us to do something we can't do. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, we have the power to overcome all the power of the enemy because the power of God is so much greater than the power of our enemy. We never have to sin again. God has given us the freedom to be able to never sin again. And when we do sin, it's by choice. You know, it's something that we don't have to do at all. Verse 19 here, Paul recognizes that he's attempting to measure the immeasurable. Because <clears throat> he continues, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a prayer. That we would be filled to all the fullness of God. It's inconceivable, you know, and but Paul still prays this, even though this whole concept is so inconceivable. It, he recognizes it's immeasurable, that it passes knowledge. Um, we can know a love that's unknowable because of Christ and his work on the cross. We can experience that love, and we can live out a life of sharing that love. You know, it's, it's one thing to be loved and feel the love of another human being, but to know and to feel the love of God is so different and so amazing and so life-changing. He says this, this love surpasses knowledge. You know, it's something that, um, for the most part, it is unknowable because it's infinite. God's love is infinite. And as finite beings, we can't know that love. But we have the experience of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and teaching us that love and helping us to feel that love and and sense that love of God and to be able to live in that love. This love is only capable of being understood in the spiritual realm because it's far beyond normal human comprehension. It's only through the Spirit that we can understand the depths of this love. We can grasp it or hold it as our own. And that's a, such a gift here only because of the indwelling Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, the idea that we can grasp that 
the knowledge of God's love and possess it as our own or hold it as our own. It's just beyond comprehension to some people. But to those who have been living in the light and growing in their relationship with God, it's not incomprehensible. We can't fully understand the, the entire depths of it, but we can have that relationship with him that allows us to feel his presence and sense his love in our lives. Philippians 4, 7, I'm going to skip a couple there again. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Paul likes that thought that everything to do with God transcends understanding, surpasses, you know, knowledge. Um, because God is so infinite and powerful in everything that he does. The more we get to know Christ and God, the greater our perception of his love will be. Because we have a personal relationship with a person who reveals his love. You know, that's why I want to be so close to Jesus. I want to be so much like Jesus in my life. And I want to experience more of him in my life than ever. And the last clause of this this prayer, which is the end of this verse, is the climax of Paul's prayer, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You just think about that, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the language of hyperbole. Um, how can the finite reach the infinite? How can we reach the infinite? It's only through the Spirit. All this fullness resides in Christ. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Because Christ dwells in us, we've been given all of that fullness. It resides in Christ, and because it resides in Christ, and Christ resides in us, we have access to the fullness of that. It's only through the love of Christ in relationship that we can attain to the divine fullness insofar as that attainment is possible for human beings. You know, it's... We can grow in our walk with Christ as far as we possibly can until the time comes for Christ to take us home. And then we'll be totally changed. And the twinkling of an eye will be completely made new. And to be able to walk in that newness for all eternity. Paul uses everything that is strongest and most intense and most cosmic in his vocabulary here because he's dealing with the infinite God. You know, he's writing about the infinite God and the relationship that little finite man can have with God. That's why we need a true humility as Christians to realize the 
difference and the depth of difference between us and who God is. You know, normal circumstances, we would be absolutely nothing compared to God. But because of God's great love, he chose us in himself to be in a relationship with him. Even the communicable attributes of God are not communicable to the, to the measure to which they exist in God. It's impossible for me to fully contain the infinite. The, the, the whole universe can't contain God. How could one person? But yet he chooses to dwell in us. It's so amazing. The fulfillment that God intends for man is the maturity that is measured by the full stature of Christ. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our, our purpose is to grow in Christ and to mature in Christ. But someday, when my spirit leaves this flesh, I will become fully mature in Christ. And I will know Christ just as he knows me. To me, that's mind-boggling. But that's the way it's going to be for all eternity. The next part of this prayer is what they call the doxology. And, and the word doxology comes from the Greek word doxazo, which means to glorify or give honor and praise. And I love that. Um, a lot of times churches will sing what's known as the doxology. It's a song, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's called the doxology. But most people don't know where the word doxology comes from. So I thought I'd just tell you. It comes from the Greek word for to give honor and praise and to glorify. And it's plainly the climax of the, this doxology is plainly the climax of the first half of the letter and, and possibly the whole letter. It's the end of redemption. The end of redemption is the glory of God. That's man's purpose is to glorify God and live in his presence forever. You know, and that's the end of, of salvation is that we glorify God. Verse 20, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the doxology. To him, all the glory belongs to God. We can do nothing without him. That's why it says to him. Now to him who is able, God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever think or ask. It's impossible to ask God for too much. Did you know that? I think we approach God in prayer and we ask for way, way too little. And I think we tend to ask in accordance with our faith. If our faith is little, we're going to ask little. If our faith is great, we're going to come to God and ask for great things. And 
I'm encouraged by that because I want to ask for great things. I want my faith to increase so that I can. Because it tells us that God can... That his capacity for giving far exceeds his, pe his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. Can you think of that? God's ability to give is far greater than our ability to ask or even imagine. If we were to ask God for dreams and visions of things that he wants to do, then we'd be able to ask more appropriately for those great things that he wants to do in our lives and in our church and in our towns and, and regions and even in our neighborhoods. God wants to do great things. But I think too often we ask too little and our faith is too little. The power in which we can do this is the power which he has implanted in his people. You know, it, it says, according to his power that is at work in us. It's his power that's at work in us, not our power. And we need to ask him to empower us to ask for more. Ask for more souls. Ask for more money for the needs of the body of Christ or the needs of our neighbors. Ask for those things. Ask in faith that... It, God is so generous that he wants to give it. We just need to ask, ask in faith. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. I think we've read part of it already, but um, and his, incom his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And it goes on. You could read that forever, and it's so so good, but it's talking about you know the, all the power and authority that Christ has been given. And that power and authority is ours to, to manifest. That power continually works in his people and transforms our lives. It heals the sick and raises the dead and is manifested through all the gifts of the Spirit. We need to see more works of God's power in, in our times that we're living in. I believe we're, we're pretty close to the end times, and it's God's incomparable, inconceivable power that we need to ask for to appropriate through faith. Verse 21 to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. To him be the glory. Literally in Greek, it's to him the glory. You know, I think of that as being a, a chant or a shout. To him the glory. You don't need a verb in there, but in English we need the verb. But in Greek, it's just to him the glory. It's his glory. He deserves all the glory. We don't deserve the glory, but yet he is willing to share with us. We don't take the glory. We never take the glory. We give it to the Lord. And that glory is in the church and in Jesus Christ. The close positioning of Christ in the church here 
is arresting when you think about it. In the church is mentioned first, and then in Jesus Christ. You see just how valuable the church is to Jesus Christ and the Father that is mentioned before Jesus Christ here. And in Greek, what's important usually comes first within a sentence or a clause. God values his church that much that he would inspire Paul to mention it first here in this letter. To me, that's so amazing. The honor of Jesus is in the hands of the church. That's the only way the world will know Jesus, is that if we glorify him and honor him in our lives, that we reflect his glory, that we reflect his presence to others, so that they can see Christ in us. And that's the only way we can reach this world for him. Two clauses here um, strengthen the meaning here of eternity. And it's, you know, there's no end to the ascription of glory to God. God's glory will be mentioned through all eternity. We'll be praising God for his glory through all eternity. We'll be partakers and sharers in that glory for all eternity, forever and ever. You look at Daniel 7, 18. We're going way back there. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. This is the Old Testament talking about the New Testament saints. You know, this is what we have to look forward to. We're going to possess receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. It's God's kingdom. But he gives it to us to share in. We're partakers in that kingdom now. That's why our our home isn't here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. We'll close here in a second. This will be the last passage. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Those are the words we're to encourage each other. We'll be with the Lord forever. And to be able to encourage each other with those words is such a great thought, you know, to have an eternity with God in his kingdom. And the last word here I love is amen. And this would have been a response of the audience listening to this prayer and this doxology, as it was read in the early church, the people would shout, Amen, at the end. And that Amen means truth. You know, when we hear this doxology, we should be in our hearts just screaming, Amen, truth, God's truth. You know, that's to me, that's just so amazing that we have that privilege in Christ to even now 
have that kind of relationship with him and to grow in him and to walk in him and to see him change our lives and transform them for the better. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this prayer. Lord, help us to be mindful of this, Lord. And when we think of it to use to pray for other people, Lord, maybe when we don't have the words to pray, but we know that there's a need somewhere in someone's life, Lord, remind us of this prayer, Lord, so that we can pray for these good things to happen in their life, God. Lord, we look to you, Lord, as our provider, our source of life and everything that we are, Lord. And we just thank you that we are called by your name. We are called by your name, God, because you have given us your name, Lord. And we just give you the praise and the glory and the thanks for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.